0: Hi guys, welcome back to the Get Your Shit Together podcast. Today, I'd like to start the conversation about the topic of happiness. Now, happiness is a vastly complicated topic, but at the same time, it is pretty simple. If you have an understanding of the underlying driving forces at play here, the pieces of the puzzle fit pretty nicely together, and most of the confusion disappears. These forces are what we're taking a deeper look at in this episode. We are not necessarily going to talk about things that actually lead to happiness today, but rather what might limit your happiness. By not taking care of our basic human needs, we cause ourselves a lot of unnecessary unhappiness and suffering. And if there's one thing you should take away from this podcast today, it is this. Ultimately, all of our behaviors stem from the need to fulfill our instincts to primary desires the need for survival and reproduction. Let me elaborate. I already spoke about some common primal drives in my last episode, going through Daniel Kahneman's work. A very popular description of our basic instincts are the four F's, which are fight, flight, food, and fuck. Fight or flight, also sometimes expanded to freeze and fawn, are all survival mechanisms triggered by fear, which were essentially the most effective ways to respond to threats such as predatory animals back in the day of prehistoric times. Food, or the need to eat, is essential for our survival for obvious reasons, and fornication is necessary for reproduction, although the social dynamics around sex is much complicated. Over the course of evolution we have become an advanced social animal with complex social behavior. These behaviors are, however, still quite similar to other mammals. And while it may not seem that some of these behaviors serve our two primary purposes, in the end they all do. I think it's amusing to see how religion has described our behaviors and desires. Take for example the seven deadly sins from Christian teachings. Christianity took these to be severe faults of the soul that marked out a person as fitting for scolding and punishment. As a belief system born during the agricultural revolution, there might have been some obvious motivations to distinguish us from other animals and their supposedly inhumane ways. As immoral as some of the seven sins might still seem today, and with good reason, it is important to understand that these faults of the soul, so to speak, all served a purpose in hunter gatherer environments and tribal times, or even earlier. All of these behaviors have in some point in history had some merit. Let's take a closer look at the 7 deadly sins so I can show you what I mean. We'll start out with gluttony. Gluttony is similar to the desire to eat, but rather the overconsumption of food and other resources. The drive to eat as much as possible was beneficial for the majority of human history. Before agricultural times, you didn't necessarily know where your next meal was coming from. Storing that extra energy as fat could come in very handy while fasting, searching for your next meal. We still have that same desire today, however, the situation is very different. With an abundance of food, there are actually more obese people in the world than people underweight. Similar to gluttony, you have greed, which is believed to be one of the first instincts our ancestors developed before more complex social structures were formed. There are different opinions on the exact evolutionary origin of greed, but the most prominent theory is that Natural selection initially programmed us to be more selfish in order to compete better for resources, and thus give us an individually stronger chance of survival and reproduction. Breed was simply evolutionary rewarded by survival. This drive seems to have later become the desire for other resources such as land, materials, money, and technology. More on this later. Then you have sloth or laziness, which fits in nicely in this theme of our ancestors' continuous struggle for survival. Laziness is just the body's desire to conserve energy in order to be more efficient while searching for food or shelter and avoiding predators. No wonder you feel like taking a nap after a big meal. Fourth on our list we have wrath, and here things start to become interesting. Wrath or anger may arise from a threat but is more likely to occur if someone wronged you. Wrath reveals itself in the wish to seek revenge. And while revenge is seen as morally wrong today, it was viewed as normal not long ago, and it has an evolutionary explanation. Before any trustworthy judicial system was established in society, the ability to stand up for yourself was paramount. In smaller communities like tribes, the outcome of any acts of aggression would quickly become public knowledge. Revenge or retaliation would be in order to not come across as a weak and easy target and would signal to the rest of the community to simply not to fuck with you. Social psychologists have shown that a victim will retaliate more strongly against a provoker if an audience witnesses their provocation. Furthermore, revenge could be used as punishment against selfish, greedy individuals that did not contribute to society and shared resources. Being ostracized from the tribe usually meant death for the individual, so it was an effective form of punishment. At the same time, forgiveness is an inbuilt mammal feature we have in order to put any ongoing disputes and conflicts behind us and in the past. Here we are starting to map out instincts that actually contradict each other. On the one hand, we have the primitive instinct to be selfish and greedy while on the other hand we have developed these social altruistic behaviors that supports a functioning tribe and tight communities where individuals cooperate and share. Here we can see an evolutionary development of our instincts. What happened is that our ancestors' genes, quote-unquote, figured out that social structures enhanced the individual's ability to survive and reproduce by forming alliances that helped acquiring resources. This is in evolutionary biology called for reciprocal altruism, and thus we as humans developed into social animals with the need to belong to a social group, a tribe. At the same time, because resources were scarce, there would always be some form of competing interests of the individuals involved. So while it seemed that we have been programmed for selflessness, that's not really the point here. What we have been programmed for by the environment is to be adaptable. Biologists no longer believe that cooperative behaviors necessarily evolved for the good of the species as a collective, but rather the individual. We and other animals have evolved the capacity to behave selfishly and to cooperate or compete when it benefits us to do so. The modern view of social behavior is that it is a product of competing interests of the individuals involved. There is a delicate balance of cooperative and competitive behaviors and this is a characteristic of many types of animal societies. Another widely common characteristic of animal societies is the dominance hierarchy. You can claim that the dominance hierarchy is a social construct created by the patriarchy as much as you want, but the reality is that the dominance hierarchy is a natural social structure that arises in a social group. Where there are limited resources. It's basically a ranking system. Rather than fighting each time one meets for limited resources and mating opportunities, relative rank is established between members of the same sex. Based on repeated interactions with members of the group, a social order is created that is subject to change each time a dominant animal is challenged by a subordinate one. Dominance hierarchies are more common in the animal kingdom among the male side of the species since it is primarily a sexual selection mechanism, but there are also dominance hierarchies among females, including us humans. If you don't believe in dominance hierarchies, just look around you. They form at schools, in friend groups, at work, basically every place where there is a closed social circle, there is some sort of established or unspoken rank. The hierarchy is actually necessary when you think about it. Social groups and teams require leaders to be able to achieve acceptance of any decision making that affects the whole group and to foster teamwork and cooperation. There are of course also negative sides with the hierarchy as well. In our next two cents you can see these in full display. We as humans have this tendency to constantly compare ourselves to others and this comes directly from the fact that we have been hardwired to interact in hierarchies. Jealousy and envy towards others appear because you perceive them as higher ranked in the dominance hierarchy, which can be attributed towards things such as their skills and abilities or acquired resources. Pride, on the other hand, arises from the feeling of being more worth than others and being above others in the hierarchy. In psychology, envy and pride are called something else namely upward and downward social comparison. Social psychologist Leon Festinger coined these terms in his theory of social comparison back in the 1950s. Social comparison theory elegantly illustrates our innate need to place ourselves within a hierarchy by comparing ourselves to others. We're wired this way because that is how our previous societies of small communities and tribes functioned. Furthermore, one can infer that the attraction of achieving status and fame is basically the instinctual desire to climb the dominance hierarchy, because of the benefits of being on top of it in tribal times. Benefits like power and the access to resources such as food and potential willing mates. Which leads us to the last sin, lust or sexual desire. Sex is not only a necessity for our species' survival it is also one of the most pleasurable and rewarding acts for us humans as it is so deeply tied with one of our two core instincts. However, because of the distinct roles the two sexes play in the reproductive process, this very predicament leads to two different preferred reproductive strategies and fascinating social dynamics between the sexes. The female's eggs are precious. There are a fixed amount of eggs each woman has from birth and they are only good or usable in a limited amount of time. Because human children require years of care before they can survive on their own, females are inclined to invest in a few number of offspring. This is also termed as case selection reproductive strategy in evolutionary biology. As it is overwhelmingly taxing for a female to raise a human child by herself, having a partner to share the burden with is strongly preferred. However, until very recently, it was hard for men to know for certain if the child was his, especially if the female in question had been romantic with other males. This makes it a bit more clear why virgins have been so desirable for men in the past. Virgins were sought after by men because they had an insurance that the potential kids would be his. So, being more conservative in romantic behaviors have logically Been a better strategy for females in order to keep a male around for a monogamous relationship. Birds, for example, do not have this problem because eggs are hatched very quickly after the eggs are fertilized. You also see more monogamous behavior among birds. For men, however, the situation is different. Men produce millions of sperm cells every day and can continue to produce their whole lifetime. It allows men to follow a more opportunistic reproductive strategy if possible. Typically a man has the same case selection reproductive strategy as women have by investing time in their offspring and their mother. But if a man were able to spread his seed so to speak without having to commit to a monogamous relationship, that would be viewed upon as an evolutionary bargain. So the male as an individual is instinctually incentivized to spread his own genes as much as possible. This reproductive strategy is called R-selection. This may also explain why men can be so triggered by physical traits that show sexual fertility, or what people call for hot and sexy. Men are triggered by hotness because it is evolutionary beneficial. Men are triggered by sexual fertility because it is time-restricted and scarce. Now, on the other hand, why would a female ever agree to sexual relations without commitment from an evolutionary perspective? Well. If that male were to be on top or high up the dominance hierarchy, his genes would be deemed as very valuable. Given she had the opportunity, a female would be tempted to spend one of her precious eggs on a male that would give her a good return on investment in the sense of dominant genetic traits for her children. Remember, it's all about the ability to survive. Like we said, the dominance hierarchy is typically a sexual selection mechanism. But dominance is simply the indicator of someone being able to survive in the world. And as our world has changed with the times, the dominance hierarchy has become a measure of the ability to thrive in a society. The resources that enables one to climb the dominance hierarchy has gone from strength and political power to include resources such as technology and wealth. Massive inequality of wealth and power allowed for massive inequality in the sexual marketplace before societal culture had an impact on these dynamics, implementing the concepts of marriage and shaming of promiscuity. This has been the case for the majority of human history. Based on recent research of our genetics, findings show that for every 4-5 to women in human history, only one man reproduced offspring. Most males in history, were sadly losers, low on the dominance hierarchy, that did not have any children. Today, the situation is drastically different. The introduction of birth control has had a major impact on the sexual dynamics of human society, we have still yet to figure out how to behave in this new territory. It doesn't make life any easier that our hardwired instincts are still operating according to sexual dynamics that are thousands of years old. As a little side note, I want to emphasize that I'm making some broad generalizations here. There are variations in our species and others. However, in the majority of cases, these are the dynamics in play. That doesn't mean that these theories encapsulate all of mankind's behavior. There are also behavior from the animal kingdom suggesting other dynamics that include intersex species and also homosexual behavior. Finally, there do exist social structures other than the patriarchal male dominance hierarchy in the mammal world that are more matriarchal. But patriarchal structures seem to be more prevalent, most likely because they are more evolutionary fit. Regardless of social structure, what still remains to be true is that both sexes want to procreate with someone with the strongest disposition to thrive and survive. Consequently, There is a desire to reach the top of the dominance hierarchy and receive fame, status and the fruits that follow such as oiling potential mates. And so wanting materialistic things is natural because of the benefits they have produced in the past and still do to some degree to this day. But the question that really matters on an individual basis is rather, do these things actually lead to happiness? Well, not really. We don't live in status-based societies with rigid hierarchies anymore. We currently live in wealth-based societies that form like networks. In short, today there are many hierarchies you have the opportunity to climb and, in theory, there are enough resources for everyone to have what they need. Wealth, power and status, things associated with being on top of the hierarchy are only a means to an end, not the end itself. We often forget that. So. What are actually those ends? According to science, a lack of health and wealth leads to unhappiness, but an excess of health and wealth does not necessarily lead to more joy. Poverty and poor health leads to misery, but an abundance of these is not the answer to happiness. They are merely hygiene factors that you need in order to be content. From the evolutionary process, we have developed certain needs as humans, and we need to fulfill those needs in order to be content. Humans are an advanced type of mammal, but we are still animals, and as such we have distinct conditions that we share with many other mammals. The need for food, sex and the sense of belonging. First and foremost comes the essentials for health and security like food and a safe place to stay. But along with that you also have certain necessary activities that maintains your physical health such as sleep, fasting and exercise. I will touch further upon healthy habits in another episode. Secondly, we humans have developed into social animals with the need to belong to a social group, a tribe so to speak. It is a natural part of how we identify ourselves, through nationality, politics and religion among other social groups. We have innate social needs and loneliness makes you pay attention to those needs. If not satisfied, Loneliness will turn into serious mental health issues like depression and anxiety. Being lonely is actually considered to be more unhealthy than being obese or smoking cigarettes. The third factor is some sort of romantic relationship to fulfill your sexual needs as a human. Sexual frustration is serious and if not dealt with, can also lead to mental health issues. Some might even say romantic love is the root of all happiness, a saying as old as mankind itself. And while I do acknowledge the intense pleasure one can feel from being in love, it is important to realize that this is only a temporary state of bliss with the sole purpose of reproduction. Romantic love is not necessarily a source of happiness, it's more like a drug and a source of addiction. We confuse love for happiness because of the first stages of love, which are sexual attraction and infatuation, the two stages which have the primary function of making you procreate. After anything from 1 to 4 years, the dopamine and neurochemicals decrease and attraction goes down, while the chemical oxytocin goes up, which increases the feeling of attachment to each other. It all leads down to one road, having kids and raising them. You may not consciously wish to have kids, but in the end we are all genetically wired to want to advance our genes and their interests. The reward systems that we have embedded are there just to fulfill these intentions. So, while a romantic relationship is important, I still consider it as just one hygiene factor among others in order for us to be content. Lastly, I'd like to emphasize mental wellness as an extension of the health aspect, which is becoming increasingly important for us in modern society. Developing self awareness, being conscious about your environment, being open, and always trying to be mindful. Furthermore, All these four factors are heavily interlinked with each other. In the end, these four are all you need. Not to become abundantly happy, but at least being very, very content with your life. I repeat, this is everything you actually need. I urge you to understand that you only need a small amount of wealth to cover for the essentials like food, clothes, and a place to stay. Your perception of wealth is also entirely relative and based on social comparison. Because of the psychological fact of loss aversion, which is simply that we humans hate to lose anything, but at the same time we always desire something more, building your happiness around materialism is a lose-lose scenario. Materialism is solely driven by the power of desire. Once again, we can take a lesson from the legendary spiritual figure Siddhartha Gautama, also known as Buddha. He realized that we are all slaves of our desires, and desire is a never-ending circle. In fact, he concluded that all suffering and malevolence comes from desire. Buddha's solution to this predicament was to conquer his desires and stop both chasing external achievements and inner feelings. This is how he achieved nirvana and became the Buddha, according to the Buddhist story. Now, I don't think it is very pragmatic to try to achieve enlightenment. I do, however, urge you to try keeping your instincts' bottomless pit of desires in check. Understand their purpose and accept that we all have them as mammals. Realize that you don't need material wealth to acquire mental and physical health and quality social and romantic relationships, the things that actually matter. Know these things, they take time, effort, and nurture. On the other side, do not feel the necessity to have all these four hygiene factors in place at all times at any cost. I do believe that these factors are the foundation of a good life, but more than anything, you need to be grateful for what you do have. It is scientifically proven that gratitude combats negative feelings and traits like envy, social comparison, narcissism, and materialism. This is linked with having no to little expectations of others. If you expect nothing from others, you have so much more to be grateful of. People that are grateful, no matter what for, tend to be happier and more satisfied. They have better relationships, easier time to make friends, sleep better, tend to suffer less from depression, addiction and burnout, and are better at dealing with traumatic events. It all goes to show you that mental and physical health, as well as social and romantic relationships, are all linked together and affect each other. Now, gratitude is a personality trait. And like I've explained previously, they are affected by genetics and the social environment around you that is more or less out of your control. But like I've pushed earlier, self-awareness and setting up your environment can help you reinforce gratitude and positivity. A method for practicing gratitude that has some scientific body of work behind it is gratitude journaling, which is simply sitting down a few times a week and writing down 5 to 10 things you are grateful for small joys that make your life better. It is a very simple but effective method to just remind you that you have a lot of things in your life to be grateful for. One last tip for happiness is creating moments of love, or rather, momentary positive emotional connections with other people. You can share such a moment with anyone at any time, and it has nothing to do with sexual attraction, but such micro-moments can only be generated when connected with another person. I therefore encourage you to socialize, to laugh, to play, listen to music, dance, and literally share the love with others. All these activities have been scientifically proven to release chemicals related to happiness such as dopamine, oxytocin, and endorphins. Alright, that is it for me today. Once again, understand and accept your instincts, take care of your hygiene factors, and be eternally grateful for all that you have right now lower your expectations to others, write down small joys, and create micro-moments of love. In the next episode, we will look on the flip side of this coin of happiness. And as always, until next time, get your shit together.